Hello, you're listening to EG Property Podcast with Sarah Jackman. Today we have episode four of our new monthly podcast series, In On The Act, in which I discuss a legislative topic with a member of Falcon Chambers. For this edition, I'm joined by Oliver Radley Gardner QC to discuss the Electronic Communications Code, which came into force in December 2017 and replaced the existing code governing telecommunications. Disputes between operators and landowners under the new code have been higher than under the old code, with one case, Compton Beecham, going all the way to the Supreme Court. Why has the telecoms landscape become more contentious? And now that we have a decision in Compton Beecham, can we expect a more consensual relationship going forward? Oliver, many thanks indeed for battling through what I know is a very hot day today to join me. Pleasure to have you on In On The Act. I know you practice widely in the telecoms field, Um, so perhaps you can start just by telling our listeners a little bit about the Electronic Communications Code and really what it sets out to do. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, The the Electronic Communications Code, which was uh, introduced by the Digital Economy Act 2017, was designed by the Law Commission in very large part, and it was meant to replace a prior code the Electronic Communications Code in Schedule 2 to the Telecommunications Act 1984. There had been a a sort of general view taken that the 1984 code, which was amended in 2003, was a very deficient piece of legislation in that when one read it, it wasn't at all clear in various respects what it did. And it also seems to have simply been uh, shoehorned into the general law of property and land, lord and tenant, without real consideration having been given to how it sat alongside other pieces of legislation, uh, the main one being the Land, Lord and Tenant Act 1954. Although it was, as a matter of drafting, an unsuccessful piece of legislation, in terms of measuring it by reference to how many cases it provoked, it was unbelievably successful because it it re- resulted in a, a real handful of a very light dusting of uh, decisions. Uh, It only troubled the Court of Appeal once in a case called Bridgewater Canal and Geo Networks, and it it, it troubled the county courts very infrequently. And if one measures success of legislation by uh, the extent to which it keeps parties out of court, by that metric, it was very successful. The Digital Economy Act introduced, as I say, a replacement code, which was meant to harmonise the relationship between the Electronic Communications Code and the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, and to hive off into the code uh, what one might call sort of pure code agreements to ensure that there was no dual protection anymore under the 54 Act uh, alongside the code, but also to make sure that the code was up to date and technologically neutral so as to um, allow operators to apply it to whatever the latest piece of new kit is that comes out, as you'll appreciate. Um, electronic communications apparatus, our phones in our pockets, but also the things that give those phones their signal change very rapidly as new and novel applications are found. So it, it, it sort of eschewed the Dangerous Dogs Act model of legislation by identifying specific things that it wanted to legislate and instead gives very general and broad definitions of the um, of, of apparatus. So it was intended to therefore create something that would that would not go past its sell-by date as the ingenuity of the boffins in the labs inventing apparatus grew ever uh, more sophisticated. And to large measure, it's achieved those two things. Um, but, but Parliament decided not to go with one 
recommendation of the Law Commission, which is to have a market valuation. And instead, Parliament, following a policy objective to try and ensure that the rollout of apparatus, networks and masts and so on was cheap, uh, varied the valuation hypothesis for consideration and, and it therefore introduced a th sort of third prong of policy by making the acquisition of code rights very cheap and, and um, introduced a valuation hypothesis that achieved that. So those are the three main things that the code set out to do. And we can discuss whether it successfully did that, <laughs> did that in the course of the podcast. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've alluded to it. I mean, the new code um, has brought with it a raft of legislation that was unseen under the old code. Tell me a little bit about the issues that have arisen under the new code. I mean, I think it's a good old application of the biblical, I think, adage that money is the root of all evil. Uh, in this case, money has been at the root of all of the litigation, as far as one can tell from the reported cases. I think that has two dimensions to it, which are quite important to understand if one wants to understand what's happening in the in the litigation sphere and in the market. The first bit that I think one can focus on is that what I've already alluded to, which is the change in the valuation hypothesis. Under the old code, the valuation hypothesis never bothered the courts really, apart from um, in, in, in one case, uh, Mercury. Essentially, what happened under the old code was a very conventional market developed whereby valuers active in the field of whom there was a, a relatively small group on each side of the operator site provider divide really had information available and had set their own rental tone so that if you look at an old code agreement you'll see that the figures are fairly for particular sites I think can be said to be fairly predictable but the other point is that they were also fairly significant figures we're talking four figure five figure sums depending on the site its location and, and what's on it and so on a, a second sort of aspect of that that point is that there was also a, a further payment made available to site providers which was called payaway which was essentially an additional profit rent by which they took a slice of the income generated by their operator tenant if they in turn let third parties onto their site. So from the point of view of the site provider, it was financially attractive because these sites tended to be on land that were economically inert because they had no other use. And so, you know, your average farmer, housing association, council would think, well, this is a good way of monetizing something that would otherwise not provide an income and that income is not insignificant. Under the old code, the disputes tended to be around getting operators off the site when that unpromising piece of land became very promising indeed from a development perspective. And most of my experience of the old code was through very much through the lens of getting operators off site using paragraph 21 and paragraph 20 of the old code, removal um, because no existing rights or removal to facilitate development being those two provisions. And that was really what the fight was about. And because there was money in it, there was value in it to professionals. There were, as I say, surveyors and valuers who were, were very, very expert in this area and it therefore created a, an understandable profit centre for profit professionals as well as for side providers. Enter the new code and Parliament decides, well, this won't do. Um, having a four or five figure uh, rental payment is a barrier to rolling out rural sites and is a disincentive to in investing in uh, city sites. So instead of having a sort of fair market value sort of valuation hypothesis that one had under under the old code, they introduced 
a market valuation hypothesis, which is paragraph 24, and the opening paragraphs read like a very conventional open market valuation uh, direction, except there are two two disregards, if you like, that are very significant economically, one much more than the other. The first uh, disregard that, that that's not insignificant is, is that a scarcity assumption, uh, an assumption of non-scarcity is made. In other words, even if, this, if, even if this is the only tower block in the area, that's not too tall and not too short and not too shielded, the sort of the, uh, the Goldilocks tower then um, it is assumed that there is no no uniqueness to that and that there is no scarcity premium payable. But secondly, more importantly, um, the code directs us to disregard the fact that this site will be used and these code rights will be used in connection with the provision of an electronic communications network. And what that means is that one disregards the actual economic use of the site for the operator. And because, as I explained earlier, these sites tend to be un otherwise unpromising sites and otherwise economically inert and hence available. It means that there is very limited intrinsic value to some of these sites. Not, not all, some do have alternative use values, but to some of these sites. Uh, and the result of that valuation hypothesis has been to drive down uh, code rents very significantly, more than was forecast by DCMS and more than was forecast by the impact assessment, but that's because both of those documents presupposed that the valuation hypothesis would be that introduced by the Law Commission, whereas in fact the, the valuation hypothesis introduced by Parliament goes much further into introducing the known network assumption, and that has produced a, a, a reduction in rent. So to give give the li listeners a flavour, in, in a case called On Tower and Green, the tribunal determined that your average greenfield would be around £750 per annum. So we're dropping down to the high hundreds or the low thousands, as in starting with the number one, for, um, for urban and rural sites. First of all, that's produced a disincentive for site providers to do deals with operators because you know, it's it's much easier to say yes to a seven or ten thousand pound contract than than to a seven fifty or one thousand pound contract. And secondly, it has affected also the, the the general market because, of course, the, the economics of it are now so much more reduced. So that that's one dynamic that has shifted, which is that we've moved from these more significant sums to these more modest sums, and that has naturally created this change in the way the market operates. That brings me on to the second sort of point, which is that we've also seen new entrants into the market who maybe weren't there when I was operating under the old code. So we now see the advent of the site aggregator. We see investment companies taking interest in uh, inserting themselves between the site provider and the operator under an intermediate leasehold structure with a view to making a premium payment to the freeholder and then seeking to extract, which is not meant to be pejorative, but just to, by way of return on their investment, to get back as much as they can on an annual basis from the operator so that their premium investment uh, obviously then yields a, a sufficiently favourable rate of return. That obviously incentivizes arguments in favour of higher rents from operators if one is dealing in a, with a dispute between those two. So those are the two, I think, significant changes in the market. The valuation hypothesis, I think, lies at the core of that. Having seen that development, one can then understand why, for instance, all of a sudden, people are interested in things that they were never interested in before, such as restrictive sharing rights or 
or the right to install a generator on a site where there's already an agreement in place. And part of the reason underlying that from the cases as I see it is that once an, a code agreement is in place, then following Ashloff and Compton Beecham in the Court of Appeal, the view was taken that one couldn't come back to tribunal to claim rights over the same site and therefore any additional rights to be negotiated with a sitting operator had to be negotiated outside code and therefore outside the paragraph 24 hypothesis. Uh, one sees the beginnings of that perhaps in the University of London case that went up to the Court of Appeal in which there was a discussion about whether the right to conduct a multi-skilled visit or an MSV in the jargon of the trade is a code right and if not a code right it would have to be dealt with separately outside code outside para 24 but one sees it also for example in the Dell Park case or as, as it's called on tower and green in which there was a huge argument about whether or not the operator should be restricted to the limited default statutory rights in paragraph 17 of the code which accompany any code agreement of any kind whatsoever or whether the operator should be entitled as a matter of judicial discretion to something wider than that as I say, money is at the root of all litigation and money is at the root of this. So the vast majority then of cases that we've seen coming through have been conducted at tribunal level or at least started at that level. One of those cases made it all the way through to the Supreme Court. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what happened there and, and the extent to which some of the issues have begun to be resolved by that case? It's funny, isn't it? When you're when you're in law, sometimes a case lands on your desk and you, it doesn't occur to you in a month of Sundays that you're going to end up appearing in the highest court of the land, arguing about it many years hence. Three pairs of barristers had that experience because three appeals went all the way to the Supreme Court. The first case was a case called uh, Cornerstone and Compton Beecham. And that case concerned a claim by Cornerstone to acquire rights over a site which was physically occupied by Vodafone on the Compton Beecham estate. And the question was whether Cornerstone could go against the Compton Beecham estate directly for its rights or whether it had to rather go against the sitting um, operator. That was case number one. Case number two is Cornerstone and Ashloch. And the preliminary issue in that case was quite narrowly formulated. It was it, it basically it was about whether or not an operator who was on site with its own entitlement to a renewal under the 1954 Act could nonetheless choose instead to invoke part four of the code to seek a new agreement in replacement for its 54 Act rights. And the um, on-tower and AP wireless case concerned a, a an operator who was on site under the shadow of uh, threat of removal without any form of statutory protection under either the 54 Act or the Code. And the question was whether that operator could re regularise its position by invoking part four of the Code. So those were the three, three different factual scenarios that were considered by the upper tribunal in each case, by the Court of Appeal in the case of Compton Beecham and Ashloch. Um, and in Compton Beach and the Court of Appeal said, well, if you're in occupation, you're the occupier. And if you're the occupier, um, you are the person who can confer code rights and nobody else can. Have a look at paragraphs nine and ten of the code or nine of the code and paragraph 105. And um, if you are the occupier um, under those provisions, then that is the only person you can go to and you are not entitled 
um, to bypass the person who's physically present and just go against Compton Beecham, so say the Court of Appeal, if you have an occupying operator between you and the person you wish to be your site provider. Um, in, in Ashloch, the Court of Appeal essentially applied that to the 54 Act scenario. If you're a 54 Act protected operator, you are an occupation for the purposes of your business and therefore you can't invoke part four because in order to invoke part four, uh, you need to go against somebody called the occupier and you are the occupier. So in a nutshell, that's why both of those cases didn't succeed at the Court of Appeal level. Uh, Judge Elizabeth Cook, when she was dealing with the Ontower case, felt herself constrained by the reasoning of those Court of Appeal decisions to find that in that case also, given that the occupier had been construed by the Court of Appeal as being the person physically present on land, that she couldn't distinguish those cases. And even though she um, expressed dissatisfaction at being so bound, um, explained that she was in fact so bound and, and, and asked whether that might not be a sign that the law had taken a wrong turn. Um, she granted a leapfrog certificate in that particular case, so that case never went to the Court of Appeal. Um, and, and so, hey, presto, we find ourselves with these three conjoined appeals in the Supreme Court, uh, who hear several days' argument on the point. Um, the, the, the only real counterparty to the operators had become um, AP Wireless, who are one of the size of aggregator type entrants into the market. Um, and essentially the arguments were rehearsed backwards and forwards as to whether it could have been conceivably the policy of the code to freeze an operator who also happened to be the occupier out. It, it yielded a, a, a very lengthy judgment by the Supreme Court, given by Lady Rose, with whom the rest of the members of the court agreed. And insofar as I can put that massive decision into a nutshell, the straining nutshell would contain the following facts that um, the Supreme Court decided that an occupier is, is not a term of art. It is and has always been a servant to the policy of the piece of legislation in which it is inserted. And there is considerable authority under the 54 Act and under uh, business rates decisions at the highest level that, that make that point. And that was her starting point. So it wasn't right, she says, to simply answer the question who's the occupier by asking who is there who says ouch if i kick somebody on site whose equipment is damaged if i kick it on site that isn't that isn't the test the test is um a, one of policy and the policy from the supreme court is essentially to say that an operator who is physically present on land without any rights or who's seeking new rights um even though they are physically present um, is entitled to invoke part four of the code to compulsorily acquire uh, code rights. There are still some interpretive issues around uh, around that. As you can imagine, there are different interpretations that have been placed by different people on, on, on that judgment. But I think that if I were to be told to give you a five second account, that's what that would be. So that's what those cases decided. And to what extent do you think that they've resolved some of the issues that have been um, resulting in this high level of litigation in the field? They've certainly resolved um, the question of the operator who is physically there regularising their position. And my understanding from, from what was said by counsel in the Ontower appeal is that that is not an uncommon situation. So that is that is good news for operators. There is also clarity that 
additional new rights at the very least can be sought under part four. That's also good news for, for operators. I think the, 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 that does nail those two points, but I think the, the, the credit for trying to make the litigation abate uh, generally is, is to be given to the upper tribunal, which has been generating in recent cases, culminating in, in affinity water, although that there are still cases in the pipeline, in, in something which approximates an informal rate card, if we can call it that, in which the tribunal is trying to tell the world at large what they are likely to get out of the tribunal for specific generic types of site. That's a process that began in a case called Cornerstone in London and Quadrant, which was a London rooftop site where the tribunal um, specified a, 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 a consideration figure and said it was unlikely that the figure for any other rooftop in any other town would be more or less. And it, it's proceeded through to a, a Scottish case called Fotheringham about a greenfield site, the aforementioned uh, on tower and green about a greenfield site and this affinity water case, which also then draws those threads together so that the tribunal is trying on the money side, which has been one of the bones of contention to give the parties an expectation of the parameters within which an order is to be made. Um, but at the same time, the upper tribunal has been getting towards in its cases a understanding for the parties to to or rather a sort of the, the tribunal has been has been informing the parties as to how it is likely to be approaching certain generic terms that are being asked for so it, it is um it is giving guidance on how indemnities are to be dealt with it's giving guidance on how sharing obligations or generator rights are going to be dealt with and, and those sorts of issues lift and shift provisions and so on and i think thirdly the tribunal is beginning to develop a body of law around costs and about what the parties can expect to get in terms of conveyancing costs for successful applications on the part four, but also litigation costs when it, when it comes to multi-skilled visits, for example. So I think the upper tribunal has, has identified certain generic issues that it is being asked about repeatedly, and it is giving answers to those generic issues which I think it is being done to assist the parties in understanding where the tribunal is likely to land with a view hopefully to saving the parties the costs and expense and other anxiety of going to court. We've talked a little bit then about the judicial side of things. Tell us a little bit about what's going on on the legislative side. I know that there was a consultation that was run last summer and we've obviously got the product security and telecommunications infrastructure bill continuing its passage through Parliament. What can we expect coming through from a legislative perspective? So we've already had one legislative intervention in the form of part 4A of the code intended to deal with um, unresponsive landlords and uh, residential buildings. But more importantly, I think DCMS has looked at the operation of the code and has, as you've pointed out, launched a consultation with a view to doing, I think, two specific things that are of interest. One is to tackle the Compton Beecham and Ashloch position as it was before the Supreme Court, and to try and make sure that operators who were physically present had access to part four. 
there is still a uh, I think there is still scope for looking at that issue, given that um, the Supreme Court looked at three specific cases and given that this is going to be a general amendment to the to the code. I think there is still a role for it to be played. The second thing that it is doing, which I think is probably also significant, is that it's looking at the um, valuation hypothesis under the 54 Act and for code type agreements, it is seeking to uh, equalize the position between code and 54 Act renewal. There is a difference. There are two differences really between a code renewal and a 54 Act renewal so far as the consideration or rent as we now call it is concerned. Obviously, the Section 34 valuation hypothesis does not include the no network assumption. That is a code creature. And the the issue there has been historically, how far do you take into account in Section 34 the fact that the operator carries in the hypothetical world the not inconsiderable stick of a part four claim if the if the hypothetical negotiation under Section 34 doesn't go to the hypothetical operator's taste. And that's been dealt with in a series of cases, which have the tribunal sitting as the county court has dealt with, starting with a case called Vodafone and Hanover Capital, and then uh, moving through to a recent um, consolidated case of three separate cases. The second aspect is the role of expert valuation evidence in those two. Um, I think under Section 34, the tribunal receives and is happy to receive evidence of comparable transactions in the open market. But in relation to um, paragraph 24, um, the tribunal has stated most recently, I think in the Affinity Water case, that because the valuation hypothesis mandated by paragraph 24 is so alien, the hypothetical negotiation between the hypothetical parties has no real world analogue. And because there's no real world analogue, there's probably not, not much point looking at the real world to see what happens there because you have to make so many adjustments to the, the the real transaction to bring it in line with the hypothetical that it's it's just not of any value. So that those are the two, I think, marquee points um, that this, this particular intervention is dealing with. Okay. Oliver, thank you so much for talking us through all of that today. There's a huge amount there. And I know from my own perspective, that's been really useful and insightful in, in terms of giving me an overview of that. Um, I'm sure our listeners will find it similarly beneficial. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Thank you. That was in on the act from EG with Sarah Jackman. For more on telecoms code and related case law, see the EGI archive at egi.co.uk.